Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The perfect victim notion is almost uh, a thing of you have to be of such pure innocence that anyone, anywhere will always believe that you were wronged. Attorney Damon Hewitt. It, it connects to the notion of Black people always having to be twice as good to succeed. Well, a perfect victim has to be twice as innocent in order to actually engender the empathy or sympathy of the masses in America. Because sometimes just being a regular Black person ain't enough to be deemed worthy of empathy, sympathy. I'm Alicia Garza, and you're listening to Uprooted, the companion podcast to the Discovery Plus miniseries re-examining the Keith Warren case. In this episode, we explore the idea of the perfect victim, the notion that only people who fit a certain prototype are worthy of empathy from the public, attention from the media, and justice from the courts. We'll talk about how Keith wasn't the perfect victim and how his family filled the gap by becoming citizen detectives to pursue justice and accountability for Keith. And later on, we'll hear from Lenita Baker, co-counsel for Brianna Taylor, who will detail her most recent experience with the court system in her pursuit of justice for Taylor and keeping the police and the justice system accountable. This is Uprooted. First off, what makes for the perfect victim? The perfect victim phenomena is really a hierarchy of humanity, with Black people and other people of color often being on the lower rungs. Damon Hewitt is the president and executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. And it's really a question of whose humanity is recognized and whose humanity is valued and who is believed and who is not. On the very top of that hierarchy, the people who are believed, no surprise, are white victims. And the most perfect victim is a young white female. Usually maintaining a Eurocentric standard of beauty, this victim is typically perceived as non-threatening and is positioned as someone the larger public can empathize with. Keith Warren, on the other hand, was on the bottom of the hierarchy. He was a young Black man in a largely white neighborhood. You know, you see this in the mainstream media. A Black man or a Black woman is killed by police. And the first thing media wants to do is, well, do they have a, a quote-unquote criminal history? What were they doing at the time? How did they bring this upon themselves? We've seen this treatment over and over again within the media, with the killings of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, George Floyd, how all of them were painted as thugs or criminals. 
Keith, we know, was a good guy. He was well-liked by everyone. But the racist perception that he was just another young Black man involved in something untoward, that impacted how his death was covered and investigated. At the time, the police labeled his death a suicide and refused to investigate further. The total media coverage of Keith's death in 1986 amounted to a few lines in a police log. It would take another six years before the larger media would pay attention to his case. The perfect victim problem goes deeper than the media and the police. When someone who doesn't fit the criteria goes to court, it can drastically affect their outcomes in the case. If you're black and if you're brown, you're automatically not a perfect victim. And you kind of got to prove you're a perfect victim at some point during the course of your victimization. Angelo Pinto is an attorney, organizer, and co-founder of Until Freedom. He spent most of last year working on the Breonna Taylor case. And he says that what happened to Breonna after her death is a fitting example of how the non-perfect victim gets treated. As her name and her case got more visibility, there were all these attempts to just tear her down and not allow her to be a credible victim, right? Or this perfect victim. News reports claimed she was knee-deep in criminal activity, that she'd been running drugs, both of which were untrue. Some outlets even falsely claimed she had been fired from her job. So there were all of this this speculation and these attempts to say she deserved what happened to her. And it wasn't anyone else's fault but her own. Angelo says this wasn't merely a hit to Brianna's reputation and legacy. It also affected the outcome of the investigation. What was most important to law enforcement was really saying that Brianna Taylor deserved it. Because I think the reason that that was important was because if she didn't deserve it, it implicated them. And it said that they were doing something that was unjust and there was a need for accountability. But when you don't have a perfect victim, I think oftentimes what people are able to do is say there's no need for accountability. Right. This happened and we were doing what we were supposed to do. Angelo says that to completely understand, you just have to look at someone on the other side of the spectrum and how they were treated. There's just such a huge contradiction when you see someone um, like Breonna Taylor killed at the hands of police and essentially slandered while their case is happening and while the public is becoming aware of it. But you have someone like Kyle Rittenhouse who literally killed individuals and is given, as I say, more than the benefit of the doubt. Keith never got an in-depth investigation. Soon after his death, Keith's mother, Mary Cooey, realized that if she wanted justice, she would have to find it herself. Deep down in her heart, she knew. And the more she pried, the more she was poking at him, more stuff would come out, little bitty things at a time. This is Deborah Turner, Mary Cooey's sister, Keith's aunt. Deborah says Mary was smart, bullheaded. She knew the police case was full of holes. She knew she couldn't bring it back, but she wouldn't let them know like what they did was wrong. And it, it was wrong. And so, you know, it was up to them to make it right. Deborah watched her sister push for answers over and over, 
despite getting stonewalled by the police. But Mary remained diligent. She even hired a private investigator. It was due to the efforts of Mary and her supporters, including private investigator Joe Alersia, that Keith's body was exhumed in 1992 and an autopsy was finally performed. It was because of these efforts that the case got more media coverage. From there, Mary went on to petition the medical examiner to look at Keith's case once again. She didn't plan to stop until she got the truth. She had this burning that she was going to find out. She was not going to accept what they said. She was not going to be dismissed. And that's what they wanted to tell her. This is what we came up with, so take it and go on. And she did not take it. She never would go away. And they hated that. In 2009, Mary died suddenly. Deborah says all of the blood, sweat, and tears she put into advocating for Keith finally took its toll. Oh, she worked until her last dying day trying to vindicate or trying to find out what the real truth was so she could be at peace. But she never got that result from whatever else. And that's when Sherry picked up the baton right then and there. Sherry is Keith's sister. She's the only one left. And just like Mary, she has that same drive, that same bullheadedness. For me, my motivation is somebody wanted to silence this. Somebody wanted this to go away. Somebody wanted this, as I was told after my mother died, oh, we thought that this was going to go away when she died, right? But for Sherry, the trail is now cold. The area where Keith died is developed. The tree he hung from is gone. The case is now impossible to solve. So she's adjusted her goals. Her biggest effort now is to get the coroner to change Keith's death certificate. She doesn't want the cause of death to stay listed as suicide. But even such a simple request has been extremely difficult. It's irritating because you, you want a system to work with you, not against you. And I don't know what my family did to Montgomery County to make the system work against us and not with us. And you're like, well, why, why my family? Like, what did we do to you to, to, to bring all this to where we are today? Like, what did we do to you? Even though it's been decades now, over 30 years, Sherry struggles to understand how the system could fail Keith so badly. And it just pisses you off because it it's so unnecessary. I'm not saying that Keith's death shouldn't, he shouldn't have died. Like, shit happens like it's supposed to. But not investigating it, not only did it rob him of justice, but it robbed us of life, happiness. So now Sherry's asking for the one thing she has power to ask for. She's asking for closure. Acknowledgement of my mother's blood, sweat, and tears acknowledgement that something happened to my brother and it wasn't suicide. Acknowledgement that the system was broken and it's fixable. Acknowledgement that this will not happen to somebody else's family. Because until you acknowledge it, it's gonna continue to be an issue.
So far in this episode, we've heard from attorneys Damon Hewitt and Angelo Pinto about how the idea of the perfect victim is pervasive in both popular culture and the criminal justice system. We've heard how it affects a victim's chance of getting justice. Keith's family members, Deborah Turner and Sherry Warren, told us about how the family decided to get justice on their own terms. Up next, we'll hear from Lenita Baker, co-counsel for Breonna Taylor. She'll take us deeper into the case and talk about keeping the police and the justice system accountable. My name is Lanita Baker. I am an attorney in Louisville, Kentucky. I uh, had the honor of representing the family of Brianna Taylor, but throughout my legal career, I've served as both a criminal defense attorney, a prosecutor, and I also practice civil litigation and civil rights. Tell us about your role in the Brianna Taylor case. How did you get involved and why did you get involved? Yes. Brianna Taylor's family reached out to me uh, actually the day after Brianna was killed. So back, she was killed on March 13th of 2020. So that um, following Saturday, uh, March 14th, I got a call and set up a meeting with her family. I had worked on some more locally high profile uh, civil rights cases. And so people in Louisville knew that uh, I was one of the few attorneys that handled civil rights cases and police uh, and cases against the police department. And so that's what made them reach out to me uh, after Brianna was murdered. My role was as that a civil um, civil attorney. And so to push to hold the city liable for Brianna's murder, the Families of victims that who are murdered by the police department, they're not necessarily interested in the financial outcome that comes with civil cases, but they get civil attorneys more so to, to get justice for their family members. So a part of that representing the family was also pushing for criminal charges uh, to be filed against the officers responsible for her murder. We have not been successful in that yet. Uh, there's still a, a federal investigation ongoing and hopefully something comes of that soon. Can you help shed some light on the process of how something gets to a courtroom? You know, for some of us, we only see the kind of end result, right? Which often is like a trial. Sometimes it's televised. A lot of times it's not. But we see the end result. But a lot of people don't know what goes into bringing a case like Brianna's into court. So tell us a little bit about that process. And at what point is somebody actually charged versus convicted? Like, just break it down for people. Yeah. So uh, a case starts with police involvement, generally. Uh, Some states, and and Kentucky is one of those states that will allow an an individual to file a criminal complaint with the prosecutor's office, but most states don't have that. But So 99% of cases that make it to court start with police interaction. Uh, The police officers file the charges, and charges may be filed before an individual is arrested. It may be concurrent with the person being arrested, but they don't necessarily have have to happen at the same time. Some people are charged criminally without ever having to be arrested as well. So it starts with the criminal interaction, the charges filed in court, and then from court, you have one judge determine if there's probable cause to send the case to a grand jury, or it can be directly presented to a grand jury. A grand jury is made up of people like me and you. Uh, They're randomly selected. Uh, The prosecutor is generally responsible for presenting evidence to the grand jury. 
And I will say as much as you will hear prosecutors act like, oh, the grand jury did its responsibility. Sometimes you do have a grand jury that truly takes it upon themselves to do what's right under the name of law. But a lot of times the prosecutor is is recommending, yes, we recommend charges be indicted. No, we don't recommend charges be indicted. And they're kind of the legal advisor to the grand jury. And so the grand jury takes their recommendations and most of the time follow them. So prosecutors do have a lot of say in uh, the grand jury process. Once indictment comes, then you go through a series of pretrial conferences, filing motions before the judge, allowing the judge to rule on whether certain evidence would be admitted. And then you get to the trial where you have the petite jury. You could also be tried before a judge, but that's up to the defendant to decide, do I want a, a judge to determine um, what's happening or do I want a petite jury, a jury to, to determine uh, my fate? So I, so when I say j- trial, normally I deflect to jury trial because that's typically what we see. Uh, most people would rather their fate be in the hands of, you know, what, depending on what state you're in, six to 12 jurors versus one judge because it, and that jury verdict has to be unanimous. So either guilty, not guilty. If you're not, if it's not unanimous, you have what's called a hung jury. Mm. And if you get a hung jury, then you can go all the way back through trying it again. But a lot of times that's when settlement negotiations start to pick up as well. Let's jump into a couple of themes here that I think are important to understand this case. How would you describe the term, the perfect victim? Where does this idea come from? And did Brianna Taylor get the benefit of being considered a perfect victim? I'll begin with your second question. And no, Brianna Taylor did not get the benefit of being the perfect victim. But I think that she did get some benefit. You know, once we were able to get her story out there, I do think that America saw what happened and, and believes that what happened was truly wrong. And I do think some of that came because Brianna was a hardworking woman who worked two jobs, had never been in trouble. And knowing that the investigation that was ongoing had absolutely nothing to do with her. And so I guess to some extent she had some benefit of it, but she did not get the benefit, you know, from the police and prosecutor perspective because of who she was affiliated with. And I think that a lot of times when you talk about what's the perfect victim, before we ever get to court, so many things are are determined by the police department or the prosecutor and what they think, uh, oh, we may win this, we may not. And I think that we've gone to, we, the, the criminal justice system ha- has gotten to a point to where we're so focused on wins or losses that prosecutors don't truly effectuate justice and give victims the right to their day in court. And it's because, oh, what do they do? They're unemployed or or they they have a criminal record or they're affiliated with the drug dealer and they just don't want their hands. You know, they don't want to be tied to it. But those anyone has their right to to justice for justice on their behalf. So in, anyone that's been killed they deserve the privilege of being their case being investigated. So we need police officers and prosecutors alike to take off their blinders when it comes to someone not being perfect, not having a a spotless criminal record. Mm-hmm. You know, as usual, the police in this case were not eager 
to hold themselves accountable for any wrongdoing. This is often why we have to deploy things like citizen detectives. Can you talk a little bit about how this works? And do you find citizen detectives harmful or helpful parts of the legal system? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think that when citizens start to dig into it and and try to do the fact-finding, we have such a desire to get things out in the public quickly now that, you know, we may get one piece of information and run with it, but you have to do a little bit more digging before putting it out there in a public space. So I, I do think that public detectives have a purpose, but I think that if we're going to take on that role of trying to find out what happened, we have to make sure, one, we're aware of what the laws are out here, knowing what you can do, knowing what needs to be met for criminal charges to be brought, but just also being responsible with information that's being put out there. I want to talk a little bit about how we advocate when somebody is not deemed the perfect victim. And this is often true with Black communities and communities of color, right? There's already a presumption of guilt. There's a presumption Mm -hmm. of criminality. But the legal system, in theory, is supposed to presume you innocent until proven guilty. Mm -hmm. So in this case in particular, what were some of the steps that you all took to advocate for Brianna given that she was presumed guilty before being proven innocent. And she was also dead. So you have this dynamic, right, where somebody cannot defend themselves because they've been killed, but they're being maligned. So talk to us a little bit about how you approach that. Definitely, we had to get to know Brianna through other means. And and when you say that, it's not just those people who are going to say the great things about Brianna, not just her mom, not just her sister. So you really have to take time to interview with her co-workers, you know, people who she went to school with, her teachers, uh, getting those school records, work, work records. Mm-hmm. Early on, we had, you know, a negative news report trying to say that she was fired as an EMS. And then, but, but thankfully, we had her records and she had not been terminated. She quit because she had another job. She was, you know, overworked, things like that. So it's always having the tools and the information readily at hand to protect Brianna's persona, the who she was as a person, her very being. And so we really had to do that prior to the media taking off with her her case. I mean, you had the same thing with all of George Floyd, Trayvon Morton, Brianna, who the media is so quick to want to put negative information out about them that many times attorneys are stuck playing catch up to get the information to dispute what they're seeing. And I always tell people that's one of the actual benefits that we had of the media not really latching on to Brianna's case too early because we had did a lot of investigation up front. So whenever they came with something, we were able to say, nope, here you go. Nope, here you go. Mm. Talk to me a little bit about why we're still waiting for accountability and justice in this case. I mean, certainly, as you mentioned before, there was a civil case. There was a $12 million settlement. You can't put a price on somebody's life. And we still don't have 
charges, there's no accountability in this case. And so why do you think that Breonna Taylor and her family still have yet to receive justice? I think that the only thing that's preventing Breonna's family from getting justice is the benefit of the doubt that prosecutors give to police officers that they don't give to everyday citizens. If what happened to Brianna had been done by anyone other than police officers, you know, they'd like to say, oh, well, Kenneth Walker, Brianna's boyfriend, fired a shot. He was well within his right to do so. Mm-hmm. If anyone else had been on the other side of that door, they would be in prison mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. And Police officers are given a benefit that normal citizens should not, and they're abusing that benefit. Mm -hmm. They know they're going to, nine times out of ten, not be held accountable. That is why Brianna has not gotten justice. Um, That is why many people do not get justice. And just in in general, the the narrative that black people are dangerous, mm. you know, that, that, cause, you know, I, I, we always bring Trayvon Martin into the, into the discussion when we're talking about it. But remember, he was killed by a regular everyday citizen, but it was because he was a young black male. And so the people that were elected to become prosecutors and judges, they buy into that narrative. Oh, I fear it for my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, we just also witnessed, right, the the trial and the ultimate acquittal of a young white man named Kyle Rittenhouse who crossed state lines with a gun he was not legally allowed to have as he was a minor. And we saw how the judge in this case, right, literally almost held that child's hand through the entire trial, even though, you know, uh, Rittenhouse had killed two people, injured a couple of more, even though there were lots of laws broken in this case. Yeah. So help us understand, what is the experience of navigating the justice system as an advocate for somebody like Brianna, who's been a victim of police misconduct? How do you deal with police and the prosecutors and the media who all seem to hold this inherent bias of guilty until proven innocent, especially as it relates to Black communities? So I've been able to navigate through those situations because I've served on all sides of, mm-hmm. we say, the V in court, the mm-hmm. the versus. So I've been the defense attorney. I've been the prosecutor. What happened with Cal Rittenhouse's trial, I've never seen, neither as a prosecutor, uh, that the the openness with which this judge was so comfortable to be showing uh, that he was not unbiased, that he he was not neutral in that case. I hope that attorneys in Wisconsin file judicial ethics complaints against them. But and I think that more of that needs to happen. Um, you know, we do have law lawyers and judges have rules of professional responsibility that they're supposed to adhere to, and that's the one thing we never do really whether it's citizens or other attorneys, we never really push for that change. And it may be something that we need, especially as legal profession, need to do to hold our people more accountable, our own profession more accountable to eliminate some of those biases, call that type of behavior out. What has been the impact of Brianna's death on her loved ones, as well as the community. There are so many families and communities out here who experience and have been impacted by 
police violence, police misconduct, their cases never make national news. But for this family in particular, how have they been impacted by Brianna's death and by the subsequent process of trying to get accountability for Brianna? It's been very hard. And one of the hardest things is that justice has evaded them. And so while so many people, like, she wants to be there, she wants to fight, she's happy for those families that have since gotten justice. She's very happy, you know, that George Floyd uh, or Derek Chauvin was, was convicted of, of murdering uh, George Floyd. She's very happy with the result, the guys that killed Ahmaud Aubrey. And, and she's built relationships with these families. Um, but at the same time, she's hurt that she doesn't have that. And I think that Sometimes people don't realize that the family, they grieved in public. They somehow been thrust into having to be policy experts, thrust into this advocacy role for others, but yet still not getting the justice that they deserved. And so it's conflicting because she definitely wants to be there. She definitely wants to push for change. She doesn't want what happened to Brianna to happen to anyone else. But it's just like, but but why can't I get why Why are they not held responsible? You know, just this week, the final officer that was fired for his role in murdering Brianna was trying to get his job back and that hearing happened this week. So she's there, you know, having to be at those hearings to make sure that they don't get their job back. So talk to me a little bit about what justice would look like for Brianna Taylor. Yeah, I think at this point and that Short of them being charged and, and, you know, we still hold our hopes out for a federal indictment, short of them being charged, I don't think that anything else would suffice. Is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with today? Just know that if we continue to all work together and push for change, it will come. It's not overnight. We've seen that. It's not coming as fast as any of us would like, but we definitely cannot give up. And we will get rid of this having to be a perfect victim in order for our communities to get justice. Mm. Thank you so much for your time. Mm -hmm. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for all of your tireless work. We appreciate you. Thank you. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Uprooted, the companion podcast to the Discovery Plus series. I'm Alicia Garza. On the next episode, generational trauma and how it affects mental health. How do people cope with it and how do they fight it? And we'll talk to Dr. Danielle Hairston, a psychiatrist who studies the effects of racism on mental health. I, we have to speak up against these things. We can't just say that, oh, the way that I survived, the way that my grandmother survived, the way that my mother survived is just to not talk about it, just be quiet. Like being quiet and not talking about it has not gotten any of us anywhere. Never have I heard someone be able to heal and get through trauma by not talking about it and just internalizing everything and keeping it inside. That's coming up next on Uprooted. For more on Keith Warren's case, check out the miniseries on Discovery+. Plus. Uprooted is produced by Now This for Discovery+, Plus in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to the production team at Pod People. Rachel King, Matt Sav, Ivana Tucker, Jazzy Johnson, Liz Mack, Brian Rivers, Vincent Cascione, and Amy Machado. <laughs>